And welcome to the fourth episode of Starbright Project. The uh, reason I questioned it for a second there is it looks like most places have ep- uh, the first, the pilots, split into two different episodes, even though it was a one, two-hour pilot. But so a lot of places don't use episode five, so it throws me for those times. And this is episode four of the Starbright Project. Uh, I am Aaron Moss, and joining me as always is my wife, Mel. Hello, hello, hello. And also joining us, we have returning from last episode, from Down Under, Mr. Hayden McQueenie. Hayden? Uh, Error 404, Hayden McQueenie not found. It's too early in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) Got a lot of time zone differences. For me, it's, it's... it's almost 5 o'clock in the evening. On Saturday. On Saturday. And for you, it's bright and early. It's 10 a.m. on the Sunday, and that's about the equivalent of 6 a.m. for any weekday. So. <laughs> I hear you, man. Yes, we're here to talk about yes, Quantum Leap. Uh, this time we're looking at episode, again, I'm calling it episode 4. Yeah. Um, Do you, it's episode 4, episode 5 of you, Hayden. Well, I consider it episode 4, but I know, I mean, a lot of places uh, <laughs> do have a, the pilot listed as a two-parter, so they split that into two parts and therefore this would be episode five but i don't care i'm happy to call it episode four we actually had that that trouble when uh i was trying to help michelle joiner find her episode to watch because uh i said to her right when you're searching for it it might be episode three or it might be episode four depending on if they (laughs) if they had the first episode as a two-parter so but she found it so that's a good sign good good well, this episode was entitled How the Test One. This was originally broadcast April 14, 1989. It was written by Deborah Acrillion, directed by Ivan Dixon. Uh, for those that don't know, Ivan Dixon was in the old TV series Hogan's Heroes. Oh, cool. So that's interesting to me to hear them. Oh, that's, that's cool. Uh, this time, our buddy Sam leaps into August the 5th of 1956 in Texas. And let's go into the synopsis on this. Again, I'm pulling synopsis from quantumleap.fandom.com. Apparently, I either didn't do the synopsis on this one or I, I got lost somehow. So I'm going to quantumleap.fandom.com for the, the synopsis for this episode. They have pretty good stuff there. Yeah. yeah so, you know, I was looking a couple of places. I've used this fandom for other things, so I'm going to use this. Yeah. In fact, I think uh, that a lot of the episode recaps that I wrote for the Quantum Leap podcast ended on there ended up on there as well. So you might end up reading us about sometime in the future. <laughs> Oh, that's fun. Let's see what happens. Um, so for this episode, Sam leaps into a Daniel Doc Young, which we don't see till later, but Doc is played by Salone Fisher. He's a veterinarian working on a Texas ranch who is coerced into entering a cowboy contest in order, in order to marry the ranch owner's daughter, Tess. Tam, Sam leaps into Doc while he's standing in a muddy pig pen carrying a sick screaming piglet. As Sam attempts to subdue the piglet, he overhears the ranch owner, Chance McGill, played by Lance the goal, arguing with his daughter Tess, played by Carrie Lizard. Chance implores Tess to get married and produce heirs so the ranch may continue running into the future. Tess, an accomplished cowgirl, is adamantly opposed to marriage. However, she agrees that she can, will marry any man who can beat her in a cowboy contest, though she retains the right to choose her competitor. She then picks Doc, believing that he not, has no chance of beating her. Sam, uh, I'm sorry, Chance approaches Sam with the offer, and Sam refuses to take the sick piglet home. He runs home. There's a young boy sitting on the porch playing a guitar. Sam tells him he's complete, and he tells Sam that he's completed all his chores. 
Sam sends him away, and he seems to offend the young boy. We call him Pard, who we find out is actually the dog's name. And Sam's nursing the pig with a bottle of milk when Al shows up. Sam is surprised that other animals in Doc's home can see Al, which we'll talk about here in a little bit. Uh, Sam finds his mission as easy as curing the pig, but he's afraid he may have to enter the contest to marry Tess. Al tells Sam that Ziggy is predicting that Tess will marry a man who writes her love letters. While stumbling through Doc's drawers, Sam discovers, well, a journal that can be considered love letters that he's written for Tess. There's a little bit of semantics going on. Is a journal a love letter or not? But Al, being Al, thinks that that's the proof that Doc has to marry Tess. So he just ranch the next day to start the contest. Lane, played by Marshall R. Teague, is a cowboy who works on the ranch and holds a clear animus for Sam. Tricks him into writing Tess's prize stallion, Widowmaker. However, Widowmaker proves impossible to handle and throws Sam off instantly. Sam helps him up, saying, eh, it's just cowboy humor. We find out from Tess that she's the only one that can ride Widowmaker. Just in case you're unfamiliar, this is called foreshadowing. The first stage of the contest is roping and ranging cattle, which Tess wins. Sam tries to give Sam a few tips on how to rope cattle, and Sam goes out to do that, but of course fails. Chance sympathizes with Sam and corrects Sam's technique. Technique? Technique. That's the word I'm looking for. Sam's able to catch a calf until it manages to escape suddenly, and Sam yells out, lets out a yell. Sam pretends that he had his thumb yanked off until he reveals that he was actually joking around and giving him a wing for you. Then Sam's arcading in poker playing. Al comes up and informs Sam that Wayne is palming aces and eights and is cheating. Sam stands up and accuses Wayne of this, and of course Wayne gets angry in response. Chance tells him to prove it, so Wayne turns over his cards and proves that Sam and Al was wrong. As Sam and Al is about ready to fight, Tess pulls Wayne away to, to dance. Sam then looks at Tess's cards when Al points out that actually Wayne was palming them and giving them to her. Meanwhile, Tess is telling Wayne that she does not need him to win the contest, but Wayne's unsure and he believes that Doc is a more formal opponent than he thought. Next day, they're participating in a post-digging contest in the hot sun. Tess gets heat stroke and passes out. Sam takes her back to his place, strips off most of her clothes, and pets her, you know, cool contrasts and a fan on her. Tess awakens, gets upset that she's half-naked with Doc in the room, and punches him in the face. While Tess is waiting for the overhead storm to pass, Sam convinces her to dance with him. As the two are about to kiss, Tess pulls away. She concedes the contest is a tie, but since the object was for Sam to win outright, he is effectively lost. Sam says, well, I have one more day. He wants a tiebreaker. Tess says, okay, you have to write Widowmaker. Assuming that he's not going to do that, Tess leaves and we cut away. The next morning, Sam takes Widowmaker out of the pen to write her. He gets out to distract the animal so he can keep control. However, Al, of course, is called away to deal with Tina, so Sam is left to ride the stallion alone. Sam's able to get control, ride him successfully, and he, which, uh, Sam gets off the horse. He tells Chance and Tess that he was riding Widowmaker to prove he could do it, not to get make Tess marry him. She, he feels that, again, because Sam's romantic, that Tess needs to marry him out of love, not being forced to. So he goes home, gets his journal to give to Tess, and she, again, she's flattered to find out that Doc is in love with her, infatuated with her. So they dance again, when suddenly they're interrupted by Wayne outside the house. He confesses his feeling for Tess, and he brings out actual love letters that he never sent. Sam realizes that while Ziggy was true, him and Al's interpretation was incorrect. In fact, Wayne turns out to be her true suitable. Since Wayne got to get married, Sam remains standing at his house, tending to the now-cured piglet. The piglet rests off the front yard, with Sam looking after, going, 
Piggy Sue, Piggy Suey, after it. The boy in the porch suddenly begins playing his guitar, incorporating the words Piggy Sue into the song he's been singing. Sam and Al look at one another knowingly, now realizing that the boy's identity is that of young Buddy Holly, who's played by Scott Futz. I'm sorry, Fultz. Sam tells him the lyrics Peggy Sue sound a little better as he leaps away. So, that was episode four, as I'm calling it, of Quantum Leap. So let's go and start with our guest, Mr. McQueenie. Hello. What are your thoughts on this episode? Well, I'm a little in two minds about this episode, actually, because I have, like you, the advantage of hindsight. Michelle probably won't agree with me, but what... What this episode seems like is a good episode of television, but not a good episode of Quantum Leap. Do you understand what I mean there? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And the reason that I say this is because an episode of Quantum Leap is supposed to have Sam leap into a situation, get told a wrong that's supposed to be put right, and then see Sam go through all his challenges in order to put right that wrong. The problem with this episode is that we aren't ever given an indication on what went wrong originally that Sam has to put right, and it seems like Sam's um, involvement there was entirely pointless because uh, I think the, the ultimate aim that they're trying to get across is that he's supposed to help Buddy Holly with the lyrics to Peggy Sue, but mm-hmm. the song Peggy Sue existed anyway. So all that all that would have happened, I guess, is that uh, he's helped Buddy Holly to write it a little bit sooner. But the thing is, the whole episode, which is about trying to win Tess, ended up completely fruitless. Um, and it shows, too, Ziggy's completely useless because all that she says is that Sam is supposed to uh, make sure that Tess marries someone who writes her love letters. Well, how else would have known that unless she knew who had been writing the love letters in the first place and who she ends up with in the first place. So it's a very entertaining story watching him do this challenge and trying to win this, this woman's heart and, and everything, but it's not an episode of Quantum Leap. And I'm a, real quick, I'm going to give a counter argument, I guess. And again, it's a lot of what I think it's maybe my bringing my own thoughts into the show, but Again, yeah, they don't know. In fact, most of the time, no matter how convincing Al, Ziggy, or Sam makes it seem, they don't know what they're doing on, on any given episode. Because, again, like I've talked about previously, and they don't have a guidebook. They don't have – no one's telling them exactly what's wrong. All they have is the original history. I, Again, yeah, I agree with you. I don't know where Ziggy would have got the information that someone didn't send her love letters. Because if someone didn't send the love letters, then – how does anyone else know about it unless, like, say, unless they found the stuff later on, but then they would know who sent it. So that, that is a bit off. But, yeah, most of the episodes are just guessing. So they assume it's something to do since he left into Doc and this whole thing about marriage came up that they're assuming that's why he's there. And we'll find out in several episodes that they're completely off the mark. And like I say this one here, if he would have introduced the Piggy Sue earlier, he would have probably left sooner. But, and again, I agree with you that and this is one thing that I also do a Voyagers podcast with Michelle, and that's one thing we talk about on there. On Voyagers, I've got it. My big problem in quotes to show is that 
they're leaping through time or moving through time, voyaging through time, I guess you could say. And they're trying to fix things that are wrong. But the boy on the show, Jeffrey, knows already how the history is supposed to be because he lived it. So we're, we're trying to figure out what, why time is wrong, why, why they're trying to correct things. If the kid already knows about it. Usually in Quantum Leap, like you said, they, they give a history. This is what happened. This is what we need. So we think we need to change. But yeah, this episode here, if it was just the, the Peggy Sue bits, but yeah, Sam already knew about the song Peggy Sue. So that's why he's able to offer it up to the boy. So I, yeah, I, don't, I agree with you on that. I don't know why Sam would already know about the song if, if Buddy Holly didn't create it, unless, like you said, maybe it's just he's creating it earlier here. Yeah, I was looking on the background on this, and this was 56 that he was at. Uh, according to information, apparently uh, in 56, Buddy Holly was about 19, and Missouri with the Crickets, and Missouri signed up the record label. And in 57, they were really Peggy Sue. So, yeah, I, I don't know. Like I say, yeah, it's a great episode. And, and like, I know, like, you, you and uh, Albia Silver on Quantum Leap podcast, even that episode of Quantum Leap is better than most shows. So. Yeah, I agree with you there. And like I said, I do like the, I do like it as an episode of television. I just don't right. like it as an episode of Quantum Leap. And yes, you are right that in a lot of episodes, they do have to kind of follow their instincts. Uh, regarding what they think needs to be put right. But I think from a production point of view as well, being so, being at the very start of the series, they're still trying to find it. And I really don't believe that this episode happened further down the track once he did have, like, the the status quo for an episode set in place. Right. So, look, and, and that's why I say you and I have the benefit of hindsight. Yeah. Michelle probably enjoyed this episode a lot more than either of us do because... Well, because speaking of, of which, yeah. let's, let's go to jump to Michelle real quick, because she's sitting there kind of looking at me and nodding her head, or shaking her head. So, Michelle, I actually, how the test was, you loved it, right? No, actually, it was my least favorite episode so far. Um, to me, it was kind of boring. I didn't care for it. To me, I would say it was his beefcake episode. I think they used it as a way to maybe catch more female viewers because it was the whole ranch hand. Showing Sam without a shirt on. Yeah, without the shirt on, ripping the girl's shirt. Very fantasy, you know, that kind of winning the girl. And, you know, it just, I don't know, I didn't like it. In fact, Aaron's like, do you need to watch it again? I'm like, no, I don't think I need to watch it again. I'm, I'm good. And, you know, him banging on the post and, saving the girl from heat stroke and ripping, popping her shirt off. Like, to me, that's very Harlequin novel-y kind of stuff. But it's also Sam being a doctor and Will Doc being a doctor. Well, yeah, no, I know medical science-wise, that's what you need to do. But as far as it being, like, the fourth episode in and pulling female audiences in and it having really no real emphasis on the, the show itself... Like Hayden saying, it really wasn't a quantum leap episode. To me, it was more of a, you know, you're flipping through the channels as a woman and you're, ooh, what's this? You know, (laughs) to me, that's kind of, especially in the evenings and you've got, you know, you know, 50 year old women petting their cats watching TV. (laughs) You're going to stop and watch it a little bit more, but. And pet their cats. Whatever. So I feel, I kind of feel like it was this, like, this beefcake episode. And um, to maybe get some more female viewers in, 
as far as like the girl, the girl just kind of annoyed me. She just seemed kind of very, I don't know. I didn't like her. I didn't like the story. Some of it I liked, but I loved the Buddy Holly aspect of it. I liked that. You didn't like Rosetta Blonde. Yeah, I was just like, well, it's another blonde, but I just, because I, I knew that the kid had to be something special, because they kept going back to him and, you know, that kind of thing. Well, that's Chekhov's gun, isn't it? You don't include something unless you're going to make some use of it. So. Yeah, yeah. But I was like you, I was like, well, that was a wasted episode. If he's just jumping after doing the Peggy Sue thing, like... And that just kind of irked me because I didn't like the episode to begin with. And then, like, to go through the whole episode and then two seconds, you know, Peggy Sue and then poof, we're gone. Like, no. Like, but it was still a good episode for what it was. And I enjoyed the episode because it was Quantum Leap and it was fun. And there were some quirky moments and that kind of thing. But yeah, over and all, it wasn't my favorite. Yeah. Well, look, I'll, I'll just say that an episode has to be entertaining it has to be a quantum leap story not just a an entertaining story and it has to exist for more than just a kiss with history i think i could have liked the episode more if at the very end al didn't say oh well try it sam because obviously they both recognize the tune and recognize what the song's supposed to be if if it had just been, you know, Buddy sitting there strumming his guitar and going, Piggy Suey, Piggy Suey, and, and, and then you can see Sam come up with the idea of maybe saying, oh, you know, maybe a girl's name would sound better there than an animal's and, and try Peggy Sue, then it could seem like Sam is actually coming up with the lyrics and that the song didn't exist originally. I could with that because then it seems like, oh, we're living in Sam's in the world that Sam's actually created. Right. You know, I, I can live with the idea of Sam creating something that now exists in our universe. I don't mm-hmm. like this idea of just using some some time travel tropes for an aha moment, but when it doesn't add to the story, if that makes sense. Yeah. And like I say, usually we do get, again, without, I don't want to spoil anything for Michelle, but yeah, usually whenever he leaps into two famous scenes or famous uh, points in history, he's changing things to make it line up with, with what we know, and he knows it differently, if he knows anything at all. But there is a time, if I, you know, I haven't watched it in a while, I was saying anything for oh, the episode that Shove Out Me named? Mm-hmm. You know what I'm referring to? Yeah, I know what you're referring to. Yeah, that one there is, I, I don't know if Michelle would like that one, because to me it's kind of the same thing. He's there maybe for one or two specific purposes, but one of them seems like it's already maybe already happened. And we'll talk about that in the future. Michelle's looking like, shut up. I don't want to know about it until you tell me about it. <laughs> well, look, at, at the very least, Michelle's not turned the entire show. At least I, I think you still want to see what's going to happen next. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I'm, I'm, I'm still very much interested in watching the series. Yeah, she's still trying. It was a bad episode for her, but not bad enough to make sense. Okay, I'm done with this. It's, I'm, I'm no longer podcasting about this stupid show. <laughs> she still wants, okay, let's, let's record. So I go to the next one. <laughs> yeah, see, unlike you guys, I guess, I agree it's not a great Quantum Leap episode because, again, yeah, it's... And like you said, it was filmed like kind of at the beginning of the season or the show itself, so they're still getting their feet wet. They're trying to figure out the, the exact rules. But I, I enjoyed it. I thought it was a, a good episode. 
And while it's not my favorites, and maybe it's just the thing that I said earlier that I'm stealing from you guys, that even a bad episode of Quantum Leap is better than a lot of other TV programs. Maybe that's just what it is. It's not specifically so much I care for this episode, but it's, it's Quantum Leap, and it's good television. <laughs> it's good television. And it is obvious that they are trying to figure out the mechanics of how everything works, too, because did you notice the big problem with the mirror shot? I'm trying, and that's another thing that Michelle was asking about when we were watching the episode real quick. Uh, for those that haven't seen this, we listen to the show for it. But no, uh, this one here, normally they show the mirror shot, the mirror gag, at the beginning of the episode. This one here, we didn't see it till the very end. And if I think I know what you may be talking about, because it's something I was wondering Michelle, I think, I don't know if we pointed this out to you or not. Do you remember the problem with the mirror gag in this one? No. And if I'm talking about the same thing you're thinking about, Hayden, you're talking about the glasses? The glasses, yeah. Because the there's a glasses in the mirror image, but he hasn't right. worn glasses the entire time that he's there. And uh, When he didn't even have it on then. Yeah, not even at the time that uh, he's looking in the mirror. So it does make under what actually does leap out when um, when the leap he gets bounced to the future and Sam replaces them, especially when we see in many, many other episodes that are coming up, if the Leap he wears glasses, then Sam wears the glasses. So, right. Yeah. Well, it seems to me like there would have to be times when something that's added to a person, like a pacemaker or something like that, would have to leap out with the Leap he so that they could survive. So it does seem to me that maybe there are times when like uh, something a person's wearing or something a person needs to survive might leap out with them, but it doesn't make sense why Sam wouldn't have like a pair of glasses to put on in the meantime or, or, or why, you know, glasses would appear in the mirror when he's not wearing them. So, Okay, I've got two reasons. I've got two different reasons for that. One, the, probably the actual real reason is what you said earlier. It's a, f- a fourth episode. They're still getting their feet wet. They're still learning the rules of it. Later on, they change their mind. He said, you know what? If he's got glasses on, Sam's going to have glasses also. That's the real world reason. Again, oh, we know that's since the I, reason. <laughs> yeah. But I like since, coming up since, with this universe ones. They're fun. Oh, and that's what I'm coming up with now. Because I was going to say, I love this show. And when I really love a show or a comic or something, I will make fan links and I will explain things the way if I can. And this is – you're going to if you listen to the show or if you talk with me, you're going to be hearing this a lot because this is my biggest – fan wink for why things are actually wrong. My thought on it is that at this point in time, that yes, and I think I think I may have said this last episode or the episode before, that at this time when the Leapy leapt out, his glasses went with him. And Sam leapt in, he didn't need the glasses, he didn't you know, install the glasses on him. Something Sam does between now and the next time this happens, where there's no glasses, something Sam's done in the past the ripple effect is went out and for some reason changed the dynamics and the aspects of Starbright Project and Quantum Leap and all that. So some, some along the way it happened and now when he's leaping, the glass and all that stay. That, that's my little fan wink for any of these inconsistencies in the show. So you're saying that there's this, this ripple effect where something that Sam changes in the past has changed how leaping actually works. Yes. Yeah, again, he may not be – and again, I forget the next time that this actually comes up where the glasses or something like that is shown. I think it's probably um, Blind Faith. 
Okay. Which is about, which is, oh, about five or six episodes from this one. Yeah. yeah. So something happened in those episodes. And again, I have to look at the episode orders and I, I could probably pick out something. But something happened in an episode that normally has no effect on anything. Maybe this one here, the Buddy Holly song or uh, Tess marrying Wayne. In context, it has nothing to do with the Project Quantum Elite, but maybe something happened when Sam, or when uh, Tess and Wayne got married. Maybe they had a kid that didn't exist originally, and that kid had a kid, or that kid grew up worked for the project, and he made some input that changed things. That's my my no prize or my, my fan link for why things are different. I'll be saying this a lot because there's things I already mentioned this to Michelle that right now they're referring to Ziggy as guy. Later on, that's going to change. Yeah. Look, I, I do agree that the the project itself does grow and evolve as time goes on, and I think it would make sense too that as they get used to the the process of leaping, that you know the the idea of finding something that's gone wrong and trying to put it right, and then figuring out how Sam is able to leap, uh, I think they would get a better grasp on it and and get better acquainted with the job. So yeah, I, look, I can live with that idea. All right. <laughs> Of course, now it makes me want to try and come up with a way to link them and uh, <laughs> and figure out a reason why it would affect um, why it would affect how leaping works. But uh, yeah, definitely give me something to think about though. Well, see, that's to me that that's that's unless I say you're you're a math guy, so you probably have a little more math and a little that you can figure more out. But to me, until you come with a better explanation, that's my best thought is that maybe Tessa's and Wayne's son or no and or daughter that now exists grows up, joins the project. And they make, while well, Sam's working on it, they make a comment to Sam that changes not the project itself, but it makes a slight change. And so the new continuity, the new timeline, if you will, that's a change now. That's assuming that Tess and Wayne actually didn't get married originally. I'm almost certain they probably did, considering um, that Ziggy knew about the fact that she'd marry a guy who, <laughs> who sends her love letters. So. <laughs> but yeah. if she, again, the only problem I have with that theory is that if that was true, then I, I think Ziggy would have said something. And that's the big issue that I have with the episode, just how useless Ziggy is. Like, I could, I can agree, like, with Ziggy's original hypothesis that Sam's there to cure the pig. But only if King Pig meant that got to kick the pig, which meant that the pig inspires Buddy Holly to write Piggy Suey, which means that Sam's going to help him change it to Peggy Sue. I can, right. I can deal with that if... Peggy Sue didn't originally exist. Yeah. So, so yeah, look, this is just problems with the entire with the writing. So, but nothing against the acting, nothing against um, you know some of the aha moments and and stuff like that. It's just you know, and I forgive the episode because it's right at the very beginning of the series and they're still trying to sort things out. But I really only. <laughs> Uh, I much prefer it when the episode makes sense in universe. So. Oh, I agree, hundred yeah. percent. Me too. And Michelle likes it better when it's actually a better episode. But <laughs> like, <laughs> like I've talked so, about before, so my... not a fan of Scott of uh, Scott Bakula shitless Michelle. I, yeah, I, he just. Well, I, I again pulling back the curtain a little bit. I haven't really seen the episode yet. I'm having some problems getting the hosting all that set up. But in our, I think in our first episode. Uh, that was one of Michelle's questions is, was Sam, in fact, I think she asked the last episode also to uh, Michelle Joyner, was Scott Bakula supposed to be a hot actor? Because in the in the uh, opening credits, there's a lot of times where they see him pulling a shirt off or shirtless or 
in the late 80s, so she was wearing these because she don't, doesn't find Scott Bakula. He did a fold for Playgirl, from what some of the fans tell me. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> so I think, um, I think that a lot of people do find him very attractive. So, But again, nobody's going to be attractive to 100% of all the population, probably not even 50% of the population. So. <laughs> this is true. But... Well, nice that, that for this episode. Is there any other thoughts you have on this? Anything I've missed, Hayden? Um, no, I'm just having a quick look through Matt's book, Beyond the Mirror Image, which is kind of the the quantum leap encyclopedia that he spent ages working on and that I helped proof. And, yeah, I can't really see anything majorly important that needs to be pointed out. And I watched this episode immediately after I watched, oh, what was the last one? The Right Hand of God. Um, right. A few weeks ago before we recorded then, and I just didn't really have that much of an interest in watching it a second time in such a short amount of time. So. <laughs> yeah, so look, like I said, it's good to watch once in a while. It's a good episode of TV because I do like the whole trying to, you know, trying to out-cowboy the woman um, sort of, <laughs> sort of um, plot. Uh, but yeah, it's just not a quantum leap. So. The only thing, the one part that I did like is when she danced with him and then she asked if the other guy knew to dance. I thought that was kind of a neat moment to see her go from this hard chick to more of a feminine female. That was a neat transition. Yeah, and the thing is, it's good to see that she doesn't believe in gender roles at all, but at the same <laughs> time, we see that she doesn't have to completely reject all aspects of the right. so it, it should right. just be live your life and you live it yeah yeah but i don't know i just i liked that one little part it kind of made my girly girl part in me kind of happy so yeah she looked very different on um on the day that they were going to church yes yeah, she did <laughs> she looked very nice i was like holy crap yeah i suppose that must have been a sunday <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, that was, yeah, there was somebody best ever headed to church. Um, one thing we didn't really comment much on is that this, for TV in general, this is uh, kind of an exceptional episode because usually, especially with Quantum Leap and other shows where there's a guy-girl dynamic, usually the guy ends up getting the girl. Where this one here, he, he could have won her, but by the end of the episode, he didn't he didn't get the girl. There's been episodes like that before. But not a lot. Usually when you have a guy-girl dynamic, usually... Unless I could continue subplot, like Moonlighting or something like that, usually the main character gets the girl at the end. Usually. So I thought that was just an interesting little twist on that trope. Yeah. But the thing is, I don't think Wayne should have ended up with a... He was an asshole the entire episode. <laughs> and then he's, he gets the rewards at the end. So. I, know, I think they were made for each other. We're going to just kick his ass the whole time anyways. Like I said, that's probably how things went in the original history as well. So like, and that's you know, maybe Sam being there might have softened him up a little bit or softened her up a little bit and they might have been a little bit happier together. But I still think they probably were together in the original history and Sam didn't really do anything there. So Yeah. Yeah, yeah unless, we, I mean, unless we hear from Donald Bellarose or something, we'll probably never know. But <laughs> Yeah. Well, this, this one, like you said, was written by Deborah Arakelian. And right. Uh, you know, this fits into that that idea that uh, if, Sa if Sam is shirtless for a lot of the episode, it was probably Bonham. So. Uh, according to that, she's a vector for this and Starcrossed. 
of Emma God, which was the last one, and the next one, Dub Identity. Uh, well, she must have been on the staff then, but yeah. probably not for very long because it's not a name that I recognise. That's interesting. Maybe I should have maybe I should have reached out to her and seen if she wanted to <laughs> talk to us. Well, we've we've got plenty of time in the future to to do that, or maybe the past. It's a time travel show. There is yeah, the magic. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, anyways, uh, did you have thoughts on this episode, show? No, it was it was an episode. <laughs> yeah. Look, uh, I think that I'd probably grade this at maybe a C. That's probably a bit more generous than I would normally give, but that's just because I understand the fact that it was right at the very beginning of the series and and that they were still trying to find their feet, but I still think they could have done a lot better. I would probably give it a plus just because I'm late, and again, I tend to be a little uh, softer on things I really, and again, like talked about, I really enjoyed this show, so I would give it a C plus, and I'm going to ask Michelle because I'm sure she's going to get like an F or a D or something. Well, a D, a C minus. <laughs> so she's in the same range about a C. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I see minus. Uh, well, I, I, unless I'm going to say anything else, I guess that's what we do for this section. Hayden, why don't you tell everyone out there in podcasting land, if they want to hear more about you, where can they go to hear more from you or talk to you? Well, I'm very heavily involved in the Quantum Leap podcast. So probably the easiest way to get in touch with me would be on the Facebook page for the Quantum Leap podcast, which I pretty much run. That's facebook.com slash quantum leap podcast. Um, I'm around. People can just send me a message if they find me on Facebook like, directly if they want to as well. Yeah, and obviously you want to listen to the podcast, uh, quantumcar.com is where it's a big um, interview with some of the biggest names in Quantum Leap, like Don Bellario and Ed Pratt and Scott Bakula, among many, many others. And I'm proud to say that I was involved in getting quite a few of those interviews that are on there. So definitely looking out if there's some behind-the-scenes stuff. Uh, Chris and Alan and Matt do an awesome job with the podcasts themselves. I'm happy to plagiarise as much as I like from them. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, they, they know I'm joking. So Yeah, and yeah, so if you're interested in Quantum Leap and you like what you hear here, you might also enjoy what you would hear over there. Um, I think they're up to the end of Season 4 now, so... Lots of good stuff coming. They're getting, they're getting close. Yeah. Yeah. Well, season five is, even though it is a. Sh- storm, it's one that I also really, really enjoy. So I'll be very interested to hear what they come up with there. Oh, yeah. I, I, for the problems, yes, I, I really enjoyed. Well, I, I've enjoyed the entire run. I, mean, I thought season five was enjoyable also. So. So you got some fun All stuff right. coming up, Michelle. I am excited. Well, again, thank you very much for your time, Hayden. I love talking to you. Yes, thank you, Hayden. And I look forward to talking to you in the future or the past or whenever it is. (laughs) Well, I live in the future, so it's probably going to be the future. But it's in the past. We're on the past for you. I quit living in the past. (laughs) (laughs) And we're going to end that there because that can accept if I continue that conversation. So. (laughs) All right, Hayden. Well, we're going to go take a break and we'll be back. Oh, boy. Teddy Roosevelt, Spartacus, Julius Caesar, Babe Ruth, and Albert Einstein. What do these men all have in common? I got it. Great shoes. You know, like sandals or Albert Einstein had great hair. But I know they were all great with the ladies. (laughs) 
No. Well, maybe. Hmm. But no, the correct answer is that Phineas and Jeffrey met them all, plus many more. But what if the listeners don't know who Jeffrey and Phineas are? Phineas and Jeffrey? They're voyagers. You know, they travel, time travelers, travel through time, correcting history. You know, giving a little nudge where needed. You mean how Jeffrey corrects the mistakes and Phineas takes all the credit and, don't forget, all the ladies? Uh, yeah, something like that. Join Michelle and me, Aaron, monthly as we follow these two adventurers. Available on most podcatchers as Voyager's Cast and also on the Head Cast Network. Adolescents this generation have no respect and are a far cry from my sweet Jane Eyre and her friend Helen Burns. Why, just this afternoon I was Stella. across and, and you know what? Men too. Well, uh, 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 Stella? Men like the tragic Mr. Rochester and teachers, Pa, they're all like the villainous Mr. Brocklehurst. Hey, Stella! Uh, yes, Thomas? As much as I enjoy um, indulging your insanity, we have a promo to record. Oh dear, and what might that be? That is you and I telling everyone that we have a brand new podcast out there. It's called Required Reading with Tom and Stella. Once a month, we will take a look at a single work of literature, discuss it, analyze it, and determine if it's worth its place in the canon. Oh dear, that sounds delightful. Oh, I'm sure it will be. And you can find us on the Two True Freaks Network, which is at twotruefreaks.com. Oh yes, required reading with with Tom and... Why is it Tom and Stella? Why can't it be Stella and Tom? It rolls off the tongue better? Okay. Well, that was easy. So, required reading with Tom and Stella at twotruefreaks.com. Thanks for contributing to the promo there. You did a great job. Oh, you are so welcome. And welcome back. Now here we are with What's on Sam's Playlist. This time we're looking at the songs that were the top of the Billboard playlist for August of 1956. 56. Yes. The first song up is called I Almost Lost My Mind by Pat Boone, and it was on the top of the charts for two weeks. When I lost my baby, baby, I almost lost my you a question uh, what with all the great music that i know is out there in the 50s how the heck is that number one sorry um i dozed off uh what's wrong with oh yeah um i don't know that was number one for two weeks that was pat boone's two weeks I, too long i lost my mind almost lost my mind 
and almost lost my mind listening to it. I, I'm not that familiar. You mean you almost lost your coherency? I've lost that already. Uh, but uh, some information on it real quick, because I've never heard of it before. I, don't, I may have heard it somewhere, but yeah. I, you know, our listeners are not going to like this segment, because we've been playing some really crappy music. Not my music. fault. Not my fault. Maybe we just need to go and pick out songs that we like from the Billboard. But that ruins the whole concept. I guess, but I'm being a music snob again. So, I almost lost my mind. It's a popular song, supposedly, written by Ivory Joe Hunter and published in 1950. From, like, Hunter. what? The mom and dad's music? Like, I'm beginning to wonder if it's like the kids not were not allowed to listen to the radio. No. And this was probably like, you know, your grandma and grandpa were listening to the radio back then. Probably. And, and that's what was the Billboard talk about. Uh, Hunter's recording this song was number one hit in the U.S. Billboard R&B chart in that year. R&B? I'm going to have to look up and see if that was any different, because, yeah. Uh, anyways, the recording of the 12 Bar Blues by R&B star Ivy Joe Hunter was made on October the 1st, 1949. was a rhythm blues hit that became a pop standard. The best-selling version of the song was a cover by Pat Boone. Hitting number one in the Billboard charts in 1956, which is why we're talking about it. And oddly enough, a whole bunch of versions of the songs was recorded by different artists. But I'm not going to that list because this was a boring song that almost made me asleep. <laughs> and there's probably somebody out there who really likes this and disagrees probably. with they're it. They're probably turning off their Zune or whatever they're listening to the song going, you idiots, you, you don't know what good music is. Really? <laughs> and if you like this song, good for you. I'm not talking bad about you. I just don't care for this song. To each their own. And you can own it yourself. Uh, that was only like less than three minutes talking about that song. So let's move on to the next song. Thank God. The, the next song is by The Platters called yeah. My Prayer. I've heard that name before. And this was on the top billboard for four weeks. The last two weeks of the month plus the next two months. Brace yourself. <laughs> well, here it is. And no songbirds are singing. When the twilight is gone, you come into my heart, and here in my heart you will stay, while I pray. And that was my prayer by the platters. And I figured it out. Hmm. I know why these songs are way, the reason why these songs are the way they are. It's because back then, people were very, very goody two-shoes. Like, second and third base kind of thing, you know? So, if you think about it, slow dancing was the equivalent of, like, bumping and grinding. So... Possibility. <laughs> maybe slow dancing to these songs was like, you know, the guy could slide his hand down her back and maybe, like, just slightly cop a fill on her rump. <gasps> the shame! <laughs> the, you know, so maybe... And, you know, their bodies are slightly... But then again... If you think about it, at a school dance, they always had to be, like, so far two apart, apart, two feet apart, <laughs> and they looked like they were dancing like zombies. They were social distancing back then. They were social distancing. But if you were a rebel, you pulled your girl close, tight, tight against your body, and held her close, and you saw that hand slip and just kind of go to her bottom. And now I'm thinking of, like, Biff in the car with... 
Thanks, Aaron. Don't blame me. I didn't do it. Uh Uh-huh, but I've been brainwashed with that movie. But yeah, maybe that's why these songs were so popular is because, or, 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 they drove out to Lookout Point, and that's where they made out in the car to this, these Possibly. music. They weren't really listening to the music. They were only using it <laughs> as background music. I think I cracked the code. Yeah, at the Blueberry Hill. Blue. <laughs> yeah. On Blueberry Hill. Hi, I'm Blueberry Hill. That old <laughs> joke when you were a kid. You've ever heard that joke? Yeah. Okay. You've never heard that joke? Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you a joke, and if it needs to be edited out of the podcast, we'll edit it out of the podcast. I'm trying to remember it now. Okay, so darn it, it goes something along the lines of these kids go and the first set of kids go and they make out, and they're like, well, who'd you make out with? Or where? Some about like where'd you learn how to do that? On top of Blueberry Hill. And I then the next one yeah. on top of Blueberry Her Hill. Jokes like it. And then the next one on top of it, and then they're like, who are you? Hi, <laughs> I'm Blueberry Hill. Yeah, I've heard jokes like that. Yeah, so, sorry. So that's how bad this song is. The song's this month is that we're telling old jokes. So a little more and information on And I probably this. learned that like in fourth grade and probably. thought it was the dirtiest joke ever. Some more on this actual, on this song. Uh, <laughs> my, my Prayer is a 1939 popular song with music by saloon violinist George... George's Bollinger and lyrics by Carlos Gomez Barrera and Kimmy Gen- Jimmy Kennedy. It 1939? Was, yep. How was it on the, the... Let me finish talking. Okay, okay. It sorry. was originally... Let me put a pin in that. It was originally written Shut by up. Bollinger with the title Avant de Mort, which is called Before Dying, in 1926. Wow. The lyrics for the version were added by Kennedy in 1939. It's been recorded many times since. I don't know why. But the biggest hit version was a doo-wop rendition in 1956 by the Platters, okay. whose single reached number one in the Billboard Top 100 in the summer and ranked four for the year. Uh, this was on a single on the album was called uh, The Platters. The B-side song was Heaven on Earth, and this was released July of 1956. Uh, this version... For the Platters was used in the 2008 film The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, in the 1985 film Mischief, and the 1999 film October Sky, and in two episodes of the 2017 series of Twin Peaks. Twin Peaks. Twin Peaks. Twin Peaks. Twin Twin Peaks. Again, there's a bunch of other versions of the song made, but again, I'm not going into that lot. I think I vaguely remember. This sounds familiar, but maybe it's just that that doo-woppy tone. Yeah, maybe that tone sounds familiar. Yeah. Anyways, again, this was a short segment this time, uh, less than 10 minutes, because there was only two songs, and neither one of them had anything to talk about. And they were just that bad. Let's move on to the next segment of the show. Uh, this might be a short segment. This may be a short episode, at least this part of it. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, our Brush With History. First thing we talk about briefly about is Women's Lib. Uh, in there, Sam had mentioned about... Oh, uh, he would test with saying how she didn't want him touching him and, you know, she can do anything a man can do. He made a comment that, you know, she may be into the women's, women's lib. And when she questioned, he's like, it's, that's in the, in the horizon. Uh, the Women's Liberation Movement, WLM, or Women's Lib, was a political alignment of women and feminist intellectualism that emerged in the late 1960s and continued in the 1980s, primarily through the interli- 
industrialized nations of the Western world, which affected great change throughout the world. Basically, women's lib was women standing up to the patriarchy. patriarchy, patriarchy? I'm not saying that right. Patriarchy. Thank you. And demanded equal treatment is basically what it was. And yeah, so he was about a decade early than when women's lib came out. Again, we'll talk more about women's lib in the future. Let's put a bit of that. Uh, moving on to the next brush of history for this month was... Wait, we don't get to talk about women's lib No, we'll talk about that in the future. Because, again, it was just a brief mention. It's not part of the episode, really, other than just the toy line. So I just wanted to eventually, briefly mention it. Bah humbug. But, again, we'll put a pin in that. We'll talk about it later. Whatever. Uh, the next one I'm going to talk about a little more in depth because it was a bigger part of the uh, episode. In fact, it's why he was there. Buddy Holly. Buddy Holly was born Charles Hardin Holly, September the 7th, 1936, and died fe- February the 3rd, 1959. He was known professionally as Buddy Holly. He was an American musician and singer-songwriter who was a central and pioneering figure of the 1950s rock and roll. He was born in Lubbock, Texas, Texas to a musical family during the Great Depression and learned to play guitar and sing alongside his siblings. His style was influenced by gospel music, country music, and rhythm and blue acts, which he performed in Lubbock with his friends from high school. He made his first appearance on local television in 1952, and the following year he formed the group Buddy and Bob with his friend Bob Montgomery. And so again, not to poke holes in what I think is a great episode, but this episode took place in 1956. In our reality and in real reality, he had already been on TV and formed the group Buddy and Bob by then. In 1955, which was two years before this, after opening for Elvis Presley, he decided to pursue a career in music. He opened for Presley three times that year. His band style shifted from country and western to entirely rock and roll. In October that year, when he opened for Bill Haley and his Comets, he was spotted by Nashville scout Eddie Crandall, who helped him get a contract with Decca Records. Yay, buddy Holly. Now a little more about Peggy Sue, the song he, he created in this episode. Which we talked a little about there that, again, it doesn't really match up that if Sam and Al helped him, or Sam helped him come up with this song, how they knew about it. But that was in the TV universe. In reality, it's a rock and roll song written by Jerry Allison and Norman Petty, who recorded and released a single, as a single by Holly, at early of July of 1957. So in our reality, he released it a year after this episode. The song was originally entitled Cindy Lou, after Holly's niece, the daughter of his sister, Pat Holly Cater. The title was later changed to Peggy Sue, in reference to Peggy Sue Gurnan, who was uh, from 1940 to 2018, the girlfriend and future wife of Jerry Allison, the drummer for the Crickets, after the couple had temporarily broken up. In her memoir, Whatever Happened to Peggy Sue, Gurron stated that she first heard the song at a live performance at the Sacramento Memorial Auditorium in 1957, and that she was so embarrassed I could have died. Appropriately, Allison had a prominent role in the production of the song, playing paratitles on the drum throughout the song. The drums sound rhythmically fading in and out as a result of the real-time engineering techniques by the producer Norman Petty. Joe B. Joe B. Maudlin, string bass, also played on the recording. Initially, only Allison and Petty were listed as songs authors. Authors, 
At Allison's insistence, Hawley was credited as co-writer after his death. And since we've had so much crappy songs this episode, let's go and play a bit of Peggy Sue. Peggy Sue by Buddy Holly. Um, Peggy Sue also, real quick, just to mention, it went to number three on the Billboard Top 100 chart in 1957. It is ranked number 194 on Rolling Stones Magazine 2004 list of the 500 greatest songs of all time. It is ranked as the 186th greatest song of all time and the fifth best song of 1957 by acclaimed music. In 1999, National Public Radio, NPR, included the song on the NPR, a list of the 100 most important American musical works of the 20th century. The song was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame in 1999. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and Museum included the song on its list of the songs that shaped rock and roll. Let's talk about this, Peggy Sue. You're familiar with that one, I'm assuming? Yep, I sure um, am. When I was playing, you were singing along and... Bobbing my head, wiggling a little bit. Yeah, like, I that's the kind of stuff I kind of grew up on. Mm-hmm. My uncle, Mike, um, there's a few things that he really influenced me with. And one of them was British, British rock, like the Beatles right. and all of that. And that era of music, right. he... My uncle is a huge music fan. So growing up, he always, always had music on. And so a lot of times, a lot of my music knowledge of that either came from my uncle or my mom. And I really attest him to to a lot of the, more of the British side of things. Right. And my mom more of like the Janis Joplin side of things. But... I mean, I've got a vast knowledge, and that's why I'm dying to hear some really good music, and this Billboard crap is pissing me off. Well, that's why I went and played this song. But. Yeah, and oh, also, you know, just because I, I need to, like, mention it, I keep thinking of um, the other Buddy Holly song by, uh, I can't even think of who they are now. I'm going to have to look it up. You got a song here? Buddy Holly, 
as we're talking about it, that's even as we're talking about Buddy Holly, that's the song that keeps running through my head. <laughs> and I'm just like singing along in my head as we're talking about it. Uh, so that's two good songs that we've had on this episode since the actual song portion wasn't such a good hit. Blue Chunks? And uh, before we finish up with this, I did something I just found out when looking this up. Um, apparently, he wrote a sequel to this called Peggy Sue Got Married, and he recorded a demo version in his New York City apartment in December of 1958, accompanied only by himself on guitar. The tape was apparently discovered after his death and was enhanced for commercial release with the addition of backing vocals and an electronic guitar track that drowns out Holly's playing and almost drowns out his voice. In fact, let's listen to that a bit right now. Peggy Sue Got Married, uh, the rarely heard original version released on a vinyl collection called The Complete Buddy Holly. It was later played over the opening credits of the 1986 Kathleen Turner film Peggy Sue Got Married. And I actually saw that movie. I went to the drive with my mom and watched it. It's a family thing we went and watched. It was a time travel thing, actually. Peggy Sue went to her, like, 20-year high school reunion or whatever. So I forget the details. Something happened. She got knocked out or hit in the head or something. And she traveled back in time to high school to correct her mistake with her boyfriend that she ended up marrying that was like abusive or something. I forget the details now, but I knew the movie because I said watch it with my mom, but I didn't realize. And I was wondering if it was tied into Peggy Stewart, the song. I didn't realize it was tied into the sequel song, I guess. Have you seen Peggy Sue Got Married? No, I have not. Good, thanks. So. Have you ever heard that version, that Peggy Sue Got Married song? No, I have not. All right. Anyways, after Holly's death, the Crickets released their own version as a single in 1960. They followed the original arrangements with David Box, a Holly sound-alike, as the lead vocalist. But that's a little bit about Peggy Sue and Buddy Holly. So, again, in the real world, it didn't happen anything like it did in the show. He wasn't singing about a pig, and he didn't decide to change about pig. It was totally different, but... <laughs> I think that we need to kind of touch on his death. I guess when he died, he, I mean, I, I know, I'm sure you know this, but they call that the day the music died. Right. Because not only did he die, but Richie Valens died. And not only, not only that, but the big bopper died. Mm -hmm. Three main major people on February 3rd of 1959, three of the biggest stars were killed in a plane crash near Clear Lake, Iowa. In fact, that was only three years after this episode. That's just insane. Not quite three years, because this episode was, what I say, August the 5th of 1956, and he died February 3rd of 1959. And I remember, I remember hearing about the. You know, of course, later on, I was around then. I, I was born a decade later, but. And what's crazy is it says the plane, a Beechwood Bonanza, had room for only three passengers. 
Holly and his band, the pilot, Roger Peterson, Holly's bass player, and future country legend Waylon Jen- Jennings gave up his seat to Richardson, who was ill. According to Jennings' bio- autobiography, Holly teased the bass player, saying, Well, I hope your old bus freezes up. Which to Jennings responded, Well, I hope your old paint plane crashes. <laughs> That's horrible. Uh, so, I mean, I'm sure he felt pretty darn guilty oh, yeah. after hearing, you know, that. And it says there's conflicting stories on how Valens wound up in the third seat. Tommy Alsub, Holly's guitarist, claimed that he had lost a coin flip to, to Valens in the dressing room. But in 2010, Dion D. Mussini, who had been silent about the not night for 51 years, claimed that he, not Alsub, was slated for the third seat because he had, was one of the headliners. But after winning the coin toss, he uh, blocked, He balked out, balked a paying $36 for the flight, the amount his parents paid for monthly rent for the apartment where he grew up, and gave Valens the seat. Local DJ Bob Hell, who was the MC for the concert, agrees that that was between Alsip and Valens, but he, not Alsip, flipped the coin. But regardless of the contradictions, around 12.55 a.m. on the 3rd, the plane carrying Holly, Richardson, and Valance took off in a snowstorm with strong winds, and it traveled only a few miles before crashing and killing all four men instantly. There was an investigation in that they ruled that the weather played a large role in the accident, and the 21-year-old Peterson was too inexperienced to have been flying in such conditions. So the pilot was only 21 years old. They were all young. I mean... That's crazy. In addition, he had most likely misread the altitude indicator, which was different than the one which he had been trained on and inadvertently brought the plane down instead of up. At the time, Holly's wife of only six months, Maria Elena, was two weeks pregnant and the day after the crash, she suffered a miscarriage from the emotional trauma. March of 1980, a long missing piece of the plane crash was discovered. Holly's signature blacked rim glasses had landed in a snow bank and were discovered in the spring of 1959 after the snow melted. They were brought to the Ciro Gorno County Sheriff's Office, sealed in a manila envelope and forgotten about for 21 years. Wow. Um, upon discovery, the glasses were returned to his widow and are currently on permanent display in the Buddy Holly Center in his hometown in Lo- Lubbock, Texas. Well, something I didn't realize about this whole thing. Apparently, as you mentioned, Holly's wife uh, had a miscarriage hearing about him dying. Yeah. Uh, apparently, due to that and the way she heard about it, after that, the police started a policy There was a policy that was started that was later adopted by the authorities not to disclose victims' names until after the families had been informed. So before that, they would just announce on the radio or TV or whatever, you know. That's how she found out? Yeah. Oh, ouch. So after that, they realized, you know what, that's too dramatic. You know, we need to actually have someone go there and do it in person. So that's about the time they started doing the whole, the authorities coming and letting you know about the death. That's crazy. That is crazy. Yeah, that's, I never knew that. Things you learn. (laughs) 
Well, because you think about, like, just recently how Kobe Bryant and his daughter and stuff were in the crash. You would hope that his wife would have been the first to be notified before. Right. Anyone else. Anyone else. Not the way they did it back then. That's insane. You take something like that for granted. That that's how we do it nowadays. Well, it's always been that way. No, unfortunately, there had it wasn't. to have been was, some yeah. way for it to have been started. Every every rule is a, there's a reason for the right. rule. Yep. So. And this, that's why for this one. But it, I just needed to point that out because, and all those people. I mean, except for I think Facts Domino. If that, if that wasn't the one I just said, I can't no. remember. Was it, what was his name? Chubb, it wasn't. I want to say Chubby Checker, but it was. Who was the guy? He did the twist. Yeah, I know. Let's put a hit on that. Oh, shut up. <laughs> um, what, that was on the plane, the Big Bopper? The Big Bopper, yeah. The Big Bopper. Was he He was he just started out in his career, too? Because um, I know Richie Valens did, and I know that Buddy Holly did. But I think the Big Bopper... Big Bopper was born in 1930... And so I'm just looking up on Wikipedia. Older. Years after, it was 1954 to 1959. So, yeah, so he was active just a couple of years. He was from 54. He was only active like five years. So he's still pretty young in his career, too, which is sad. Yeah. Well, he was, he was only 28 when he died, so he was young to begin yeah, with. Yeah, he was young to begin with. They were all pretty young. Yeah. That's too bad. And they were some very talented, talented people. Oh, very much so, yes, all of them. And then you have the crap that we got to listen to. The, 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 <laughs> yeah, no, the really good ones had to be blown uh, up into a plane crash. <laughs> but to be fair, the Platters had some good music. I know, it just wasn't but I'm one. just saying it wasn't Richie Valens or Buddy Holly or the Big Bopper. Maybe we, I don't know. I haven't looked at see what music we need. We're be looking into, but anyways, since we've left it on a down, let's go ahead and end the episode there. <laughs> I say what we do since we played a Buddy Holly. I say we play a Richie Valens and then we play a little bit of a Big Bopper just for. I'll play a little bit because I hate to get sued. Sued? What's that? <laughs> okay, so it was hard to pick which song I wanted to play since Richie Valens has actually quite a few. Well, not quite a few because he ended so shortly. <laughs> But there's a few favorites of mine. Um, I was going to pick La Bamba, but it's so overly done, even though it's such a great song. Well, that's why it's overdone. And O'Donna is too slow. You know, we can't. I love it. Don't get me wrong. I think it's a beautiful song. But since it's, we've already bagged on the slow songs tonight, I decided to do Come On, Let's Go by Richie Valens. So here he is. Come on, let's go by Richie Valens. The next one that we decided, well, that I picked out of that, (laughs) after looking up the Big Bopper, because I wasn't actually sure who he, I knew of him, but I, I wasn't familiar with him that well. But after looking him up, I was like, oh my gosh, that's him. I love him. 
And I remember my grandpa quoting him and that kind of thing. And my mom's, you know, quoting him. So I decided to definitely pick Chantilly Lace because growing up, I've heard so many times all of the quotes from the opening part of the song. And if you ever get a chance to look him up on YouTube, watch him. He is Mm -hmm. a performer and Mm -hmm. a half. Oh, yeah. And, man, he's really fun to watch. (laughs) And it's too bad that he didn't get to do more of that because I'm telling you, he had stardom. He really was a great performer, and he would have gone far. Oh, yeah. It's too bad that he didn't get a chance. Well, let's go and play a little bit of Chantilly Lace right now. Hello, baby. Yeah, this is the Big Papa speaking. <laughs> oh, you sweet thing. Do I want? Will I want? Oh, baby, you know what I like. Chantilly Lace and a pretty face and a ponytail hanging down, wiggle in the walk and a wiggle in the talk. Make the world go round. Ain't nothing in the world like a big-eyed girl to make me act so funny, make me spend my money, make me feel real loose like a long-necked goose, like a girl. Oh, baby, that's the one I like. What's that, baby? But, but. And that was Chantilly Lace by the Big Bopper. Uh, but that's going to do it for this episode of the Starbright Project. Join Michelle and myself here next month as we see where Sam leaps into. Well, it looks like this time around, when we see him leap this time, he's once again on his back. But it looks like he had fun. But it looks like he left a little bit too late to enjoy it. If you catch my drift. Oh, I catch him. So, and the lady that he's with was all, if I'm lying, I'm dying. And she had a really kind of, I want to say like Brooklyn-y kind of, some kind of accent that, you know, Italian-y kind of accent. I don't know. Some some along those lines I'm picking up. So I'm kind of curious about that. Can you give me a little bit of some... Just something. A little some, something? Yeah, let me check the handlink and see what... Let me see what Ziggy tells me this time. Come on, Ziggy. Give me something good. <laughs> oh, yeah. This episode. What do you mean, this episode? Well, I can tell you more. But then I have to feed you the fishes. Oh, boy. Thank you for listening to the Starbright Project. Join us monthly as we continue leaping with Sam and Al. If you like the show, I recommend buying Quantum Leap on Blu-ray. You can also watch it on the NBC website or app. The only thing on this show that Michelle and I own are our thoughts and opinions. NBC Universal own the rights to Quantum Leap, and any songs that we use are owned by their respective owners. Any clips we use, we're using good faith for the show. I know this doesn't excuse us legally, but we just want NBC to sue us. We're as big fans of the show and want to share that love with the world. 
For more podcasting goodness, check out the other shows on the Headcast Network. Headspeaks is released on the first Tuesday of the month, where I talk about comics, TV shows, movies, books, and whatever I want, but it's usually geek-related. G.I. Joe, a Royal Market Headcast, is normally out the second Tuesday of the month, where a rotating batch of guest hosts and I discuss the G.I. Joe comics and cartoons from the 80s. The third Thursday brings us Task Force X, where I talk about John Ostinger's Suicide Squad and Paul Kupperberg's Checkmate comics, both from the late 80s, early 90s. Finally, the fourth Tuesdays of the month, we have the Starman Manhunter Adventure Hour, where I examine the Will Payton Starman comic and the Mark Shaw Manhunter comics, again, both from the late 80s. Then on Thursdays, I release my second batch of shows, where Michelle shows up on most of them. The first Thursday of the month, I'll be releasing the Starbright Project, a Quantum Leap podcast, where Michelle and I look at the greatest time travel show in the late 80s and early 90s. Then the second Thursday of the month, look for Retrospect of the 80s. You guessed it, Michelle and myself take a time travel trip back to the greatest decade that was, in my opinion. The third Thursday will possibly, maybe, bring another show, Voyager's Cast, where Michelle, I, and some guests look at the best time travel show from the early 80s. And finally, on the fourth Thursday of the month, I have Bravo Team, where myself and possibly some guest hosts talk about anything G.I. Joe related, not covering the main G.I. Joe show. Also, if you like what I'm doing, please check out my Patreon page at patreon.com slash headcastnetwork. If you're enjoying my shows, throw a few bucks in the bin. You must appreciate it. But that'll do it for this episode. Join us next time to see where Sam ends up. Oh, boy. for the blooper reel at least yeah <laughs> yeah uh, this episode might be a little bit of a downer because none of us really liked it <laughs> yeah it's not as it's not as good as the, the right hand of god and the pilot and yeah uh and i'm the, sorry the, third, I... the second one i didn't expect you to have anybody because yeah, it was rather last minute. Uh, yeah, we got rid of Grayson, and so we were able to, like, record, let's record, let's record something. We got time, let's do it. It's just because <laughs> Michelle's so keen to see uh, if I'm lying, I'm dying. <laughs> <laughs> I love that episode. Again, that, I, I told her, I gave her, a, a, I don't know how much I said, but I gave her a little bit. I told her that this answers some questions she's asked about the show. Oh, this yeah. next episode. Or at least partially answers. <laughs> yeah, it gives, it gives a little bit of answers. Yeah.